welcome to the Nightstand Collective podcast, where we talk about the spiritual lives of folks with chronic illness through the objects and the rituals that reside on their bedroom nightstand. Hello there, my name is Emma Jones and I am your host on this journey through the Nightstand Collective. On this episode of the podcast, I have invited a dear friend, Richard, who I have known for almost 20 years. Over those years, we have traveled together through our personal journeys with depression. Richard started his career as a journalist, where his lifelong craft of asking penetrating and really beautiful questions has evolved into a career as a psychotherapist. Due to the nature of his psychotherapy practice, Richard has requested to be anonymous for this episode. Today we discuss the complexities of life with depression, the soul of objects and the rituals that center us from watching snails at dawn to centering prayer and the burning of incense. You can find a list of the books that are mentioned in this episode on my website, thegeographyofillness.com. Hello, my friend, and thank you so much for being my very first guest on my podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, yeah. So I wanted to start off by talking about the thin place and then leaping from there into the land of depression. So I've been thinking a lot of the Nightstain Collective and the Celtic idea of the thin place. And just to explain that a little bit more for the listeners, um, the thin place is a place that is traditionally an actual location that has a quality to it that is believed to give access to other realms or, or spiritual realms. I have been thinking about how you know, chronic illness might give us access to the thin place in different ways. So that's one part perhaps as the umbrella over our conversation today. And the second thing is that I have this really intense curiosity about objects that I've had for my whole life. And especially the objects that we keep close to us. And I'm interested in what people are reaching for in the night for comfort. Mm. You know, what objects or rituals people reach for in the times where they're most vulnerable. And you know, mostly for me, that is in the middle of the night. And especially when I'm in pain or I'm in mental health pain. Um, and I often don't really remember what the tools are. Mm. So I'm interested in what people are doing when the tools kind of fall away. What folks are doing in that space. In the Nightstand Collective, I have um, now got 80 nightstands. 80? Oh my God. Wow, that's great. And most of people have a cluster of conditions. It's not just one condition. They mm. travel in packs. And a very mm. common condition amongst so many of them is depression. Mm -hmm. And you and I have talked about depression many times. So yeah. I mm -hmm. wanted to ask you 
about the nature or your relationship with depression and mm. if you could describe your journey with depression mm -hmm. and what depression looks like for you. I think I first experienced what was called depression around the age of, I guess I would probably would have been 19 or 20. I was living in Texas at the time in college. It was, I think, an unremarkable depression at that time. But then later on, I was re-diagnosed with so-called clinical depression. But a real hallmark for me is just really black anxiety. I lose my confidence. Everything is frightening. I feel like I simultaneously need people around and don't want them around at the same time. And even the simplest tasks, like once I remember uh, during one of one episode of, of this, just really struggling to pull myself together every day just to, to show up. So I just get into a state of dysfunction where, quite frankly, I probably could have been hospitalized. And I've, I've had two of these really major episodes. One was in Texas and one was in uh, the state of Washington. So really the place I get into... Another hallmark, I would say, of the, the state of mind I get into is paranoia. I will become extremely paranoid, just completely insecure in the world. Like even going grocery shopping or just buying something becomes like this huge task in which I might actually fall apart or, or be annihilated and... Um, and then on top of that, just the, the relative shame of it all. And, and then your, your friends pretty much get tired of this pretty quickly. Um, they, or at least my, you know, some of my friends did, that, that really you just become so uh, self-absorbed that you're, it's hard to be around you, you know. Like you can't be open to, to what's actually happening. You're, you're so kind of self-involved that nothing is pleasant, nothing is pleasurable. And, and in both of those cases, another thing that happened, another way the depression looks, is that I lose a tremendous amount of weight. I would lose like 20 pounds, like just shed it. I just was, wasn't eating and um, just constantly burning calories with this cortisol kind of response in my body. The, if there's a precursor to it, now that I'm thinking about it, it's it's anger. Like I'll become very irritable and uh, kind of uncontained, and then and then I fall into a pretty pretty dark place. It's so interesting, isn't it? That I think the the image that folks have of depression or people that haven't experienced depression is is kind of this flatline place. But it's so much more than that, and it is exhausting in a different way. Have your symptoms changed over the time? You say you've had two major episodes, but have is it kind of bubbling away? Does it change as you get older? I found that mine has changed and morphed, and the irritability is something that I struggle with more now. Hmm. Interesting. It's hard for me to tease apart what would be a kind of organic shift in the symptoms and what would actually be 
uh, treated by medication and just my inner work, my psychotherapy. But I would say that that these days, what it looks like is, uh, and I'm still on medic. I'm still on a dose of medication, forty milligrams of, of Prozac daily, which is uh, kind of a low mid dose. I've tried variations of going, you know, going down on it and and inevitably the the sort of agitation and irritability come back the uh hyper arousal will come back and i would say just a feeling of like little whiffs of paranoia and, and lack of confidence those things will sort of return when those aren't there i would suppose that i feel a kind of sadness. The Germans have a name for it. It's kind of a world weariness, a world sadness that I feel. But there's a part of me that's just constantly raining inside, like, or crying or something. It never goes away. It's always there. I'm thinking about your nightstand and the picture that you gave me of your nightstand before. And so you had one nightstand and an altar. What are the tools that you reach for on your nightstands that provide any comfort? And what, what is that comfort? So I recently moved and I don't have much of a nightstand. So my, my center point has become the altar and it's always sort of been the altar and things shift back and forth between the two. Uh, one of the things I, I have on my altar, which I acquired about, five years ago is a replica of the Black Madonna of Rocamadour, which is a, uh, an image of the Madonna sitting with the, the Holy Child on her lap. As I've gotten older, I no longer require much to feel comforted. I think my, things have gotten simpler and what I really need is silence, and I really like incense. I really like to have some kind of um, incense burning, or I'll just burn a little bit and bless the space I'm in and bless my body, and then I enter into a meditation or a prayer, or I'll do some reading. Books are also a real solace. What incense do you burn? Is there a particular one? It's a stick, and it's made by a Japanese company called, um, let's see, the brand is Morningstar by Nippon Kodo. And then the Morningstar line has all these amazing fragrances. Well, you think about incense and the role of incense throughout history, and, and you know, frankincense itself is actually an anti-inflammatory. I mean, they have mm, impacts mm -hmm. on the body, and the nervous system that we're still really understanding. I was so, just burning frankincense this morning. I love the smell of frankincense. Yeah, that's my favorite. Yeah. I was really getting into kind of monastery-made incense that you you had the little charcoal tablets and you would heat them up and you would pour it on there. But it was just, it got to be too much, you know, for a home. Yeah. It's like it just it totally like... <laughs> smokes <laughs> your house up you know and so I just I just started going with the little bitty sticks which I think is more at scale but um and I put it in uh 
a little bowl with rice. So the rice holds it up. There's something about the billowing smoke and just being encompassed in it. And right. Yeah, I can understand why people in church in the early days, like the mm -hmm. experiencing that would be really magical and mystical. So, yeah, incense is powerful. So you mentioned that books are a real solace to you. What books do you reach for and what are you reading right now? I've been reading from The Choice is Always Ours. That's one book. It's an anthology of spiritual and Jungian writings. I always have some kind of book going on. Right now it's Thomas More's Planets Within, the Astrological Psychology of Marsilio Ficino. And Ficino was in the court of the Medici and during the Renaissance. And Ficino translated from, I think, whatever language it w would have been in Arabic, the Emerald Tablet, which is the, it's the one that starts, you know, tis true, certain and most true, that which is below is like that which is above, and that which is above is like that which is below. And it goes on. It's a very short set of descriptions of the alchemical dynamic, and it's the heart of the Corpus Hermeticum, which for me has been a place just going in and reading about, like you were talking about the thin place, reading about the rules of the thin place. What are they? What are the physics in the thin place? What are the, is, are there images? Is there light like we know light? Is there, what is the thin place inside me? Or is it outside? Or is it some way of interacting with the outside that brings this thin place into existence? And so I would, I'm glad you brought up the thin place because I think that when I sit down pretty much reg, you know, on a daily basis, I'm entering that space where I can receive something that's other than my neuroses and other than my worries and other than the real material crap that I have to deal with. is that Because it never really goes away, the depression. I, I don't expect it to ever go away. I've just had to, over my life, develop a relationship with it that's not as fraught with expectations about how I ought to be or who I'm disappointing or whatever. I feel a lot more comfortable now as, an, as um, an older person asking for what I need and not being apologetic about it, knowing that I have a kind of affliction, if you will. So you mentioned sitting in silence. And when you sit in that place, in that thin place, is that where you experience God or a godlike quality? No. I think it's it's a potential space. The British psychoanalyst Donald Winnicott wrote about a psychological potential space. Actually, it's a medical term which which I think means something like a the space in which an organ can grow into the potential space. And it's a space for an encounter of something divine, but it is not God. 
I think it's a space that I, you know, that one creates within themselves for the encounter. Often the encounter is unintelligible. It's just a piece, I think, uh, that, as they say in, in some of the Christian texts, that lacks understanding. It just sort of comes from nowhere. It emerges. And I think it's experienced in the central nervous system of the body. It is. I mean, we, we're sentient, so we do experience it. But it's way beyond understanding, I think. It has to just sort of come, and there's nothing to be done with it. There's nothing to be figured out about it. It just comes, and then it goes. And usually, if, like, if I'm sitting for 20 minutes... I'll get maybe 90 seconds of that feeling. That's all, if I'm lucky. And lately, I've been so preoccupied with my neuroses that it's really hard to quiet down on the inside. So a couple of things. I've been, think I've been reading a lot about Hildegard mm -hmm. because she had migraines. Mm -hmm. And, um, well, they... they presume that she had migraines a lot of her artwork mm -hmm. seems like she did and a quote that I wrote down is from her is the soul is not in the body the body is in the soul mm. so it kind of makes me think about what you mm -hmm. were talking about mm -hmm. and then I'm want to get more to your spiritual practice can you share a little bit about about your spiritual beliefs and background? Well, I was raised in a very flat, two-dimensional uh, Southern Baptist tradition, and then I left the Christian church for a long time and came back around to really Episcopalian or Anglo-Catholic Christian tradition for many years, and I think I've moved away from that again a lot of it for me now has to do with getting out of the way. And my, the only way I can reach that 90 seconds is when I've really surrendered almost like everything. There has to be a kind of consent and a surrender to, for lack of a better way of saying it, to nothing. Like you surrender to nothing. And you allow nothing to be experienced it's it's hard to describe um but so yes i do think that the practice over you know 20 25 years however long i've been doing it helps me enter that state i, I think you're familiar with this this poem the the john dunn where he says bring us a lord at our last and awakening bring us O lord god at our last awakening into the house and gate of heaven, to enter into that gate and dwell in that house, where there shall be no darkness nor dazzling, but one equal light, no noise nor silence, but one equal music, no fears or hopes, but one equal possession, no ends or beginnings, but one equal eternity. In the habitations of thy glory and dominion, world without end. It's in this awakening 
that is that he's saying that that's heaven and in this space there's really nothing it's like the talking head song too heaven is a place where nothing really happens <laughs> and like where David Byrne he's talking about a bar called heaven but it's a place where nothing really happens and I do think that if I can experience it's almost as if nothing is happening and everything is happening at the same time and my practice is mostly about just sitting down in silence with my uh, my incense, my little timer. Uh, sometimes I practice something called centering prayer, which uses a very simple word to return. Well, the instruction is you use a word to consent to God's presence and action within you, however you conceive God. And it's not it's not so much a, a mantra because it you don't want to get too focused on it. It has to be more airy and very soft. Like, but if you notice yourself drifting or into a neurotic thought, or if you're reacting to something that's going on inside, you just softly say this word as as your consent. And the rest of it isn't is kind of like not up to me. I think there, you know, there are also there are also many days where I don't experience anything but a bad taste in my mouth or the leaf blower outside you know stuff like that I think you have to be willing to um, surrender your desire for almost anything and I guess uh, in the contemplative prayer tradition the what they call the passions or the desires are are also synonymous with uh, demons they're things that preoccupy us, that take us away from our encounter, uh, an encounter with the divine within. And if we surrender all of that, if we surrender our desires, even I would say, if I surrender my desire for my depression to go away, or if I surrender my desire for my anxiety to go away, I really surrender everything I think I find that I don't need that much. And I think that as I think about your questions, I used to have like all these things around me, like these tools and uh, bowls and chimes and crystals and all kinds of things. And those are all beautiful and they have meaning. But I also know now that I don't need them. I'm not latched to them in any way. And they really don't do anything outside of me. It's like what they mean on the inside. And things have just gotten simpler and simpler. But if you hadn't have had that 23 years of practice with those items around you, do you think you would have got to that place now? Is it just part of the process or? Oh, yeah. I really do think that those those things helped me represent something they represented something that I later internalized if that makes sense it's like I still have this bowl it's a little alabaster bowl with a little metal Jerusalem cross in the base of it and I fill it with water and then there's the Madonna lots of different things I believe I think I internalized 
and I, I think the altar is a uh, kind of a guide for what I'm trying to bring inside of me. And I think that this happened when I started going back. I don't go to church anymore, but when I was going to church, there was something psychoactive about the liturgy itself that was very important. And I couldn't tell you exactly what that is. But if you go enough, you start to internalize the movement of the liturgy itself. And it becomes this internal thing that's helpful in structuring. Yeah. That's so beautiful. I hadn't thought about it in that way. Yeah. That it does become a part of you mm-hmm. that you can, you know, call upon that's within you. You don't need the bells and whistles right. in the same way. Yeah, that's what I've I found. And I think that you can experience what I'm talking about looking at an earthworm in, in the dirt or a leaf. It doesn't matter. I think what matters is, is your presence of mind and being open to what's actually happening. And that's kind of hard because I think, I don't know if you've experienced this, but as I'm getting older, I realize a lot of the things that I, that I valued are just fictions. It's just like they're, I mean, I do value things, things, ideas, whatever. But a lot of the things I thought were true, like my career or whatever, it's just, it's all fiction. That's somewhat dismaying, but also liberating at the same time, you know? No, I do know. That does make sense. I think things just have less power mm-hmm. to yeah, sway the day. But I have a ritual in the summer, not so much in the winter because they're not around, of going out in the morning very early before the sun comes up, just as the sun is coming up, to watch the snails. Oh, yeah. And because in the morning they go back to their nests and they actually do travel in a pack. They do travel as a group and they move as a group around the yard throughout the summer. And that's one of the most relaxing and beautiful things that I can get connected to. God, whatever. I haven't figured that out in my life. I'm still searching for that. But yeah, I think you can find that sense of mm-hmm. of peace within yourself, of not thinking, and that time doesn't matter. So how would you define your 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 religion are you would you call yourself religious or spiritual at this point i guess i would say both i mean maybe religion has the word religion has been maligned maybe for good reason or it has some some maybe negative connotations as well as positive ones but in terms of the original meaning of the word which means to re-yoke yourself it, it literally, I think it literally means to like re-yoke yourself to God. Then, yes, I'm religious. I do something every day, or I try to do something every day that does that for, for myself. And we were talking about things. I still, I was reevaluating what I was saying. I'm not, it's not like I'm going down to know things. I move through different things. And having beautiful things to look at, beauty is the thing for me, something beautiful. And it could be 
a snail shell. But as long as I resonate with it as beautiful, then I think that that helps realign me or re-yoke me to something more fulfilling than my disease. I would actually say like disease and depression is the absence of feeling. It's the absence of what I'm talking about. The absence of meaning, the absence of, of, the, of an experience of beauty uh, or the inability to access that, you know, like imagine what your, your summer mornings would be like if you never went and saw the snails. Is that, to me, that's a religious act in the sense that you're re-yoking yourself to something that is a mystery. You know, all you know is that you just love it. I do. I just love it. And I just feel so much more connected and grounded and mm -hmm. joyful. Like it just brings me so much joy mm -hmm. to, to watch snails. It just does. <laughs> so what kind of snails? Just your standard garden snail. Nothing fancy. It doesn't infuriate you that maybe they eat your garden? <laughs> I actually, what I do is I have a, a sacrificial cabbage or some kind of plant that I mm. direct them to, and then they usually stay away from the others. Mm. So I try and share with the snails. Mm. They're pretty remarkable creatures. Mm -hmm. But I love that you brought up the word mystery, mm -hmm. just the mystery of life and the joy that comes with the mystery of life. So how do you find joy and mystery in your day? Hmm. Well, that's a really good question. Um, I think joys are, joys come pretty simply uh, by knowing that, I, that as a creature, I have things I like, like my morning tea and my robe. Maybe... Lately, it's been the feeling of foggy, cool air in the morning or treetops. They're creaturely things that bring me joy. And also, you know, doing something for my, my partner. I, I never really thought that, I don't think that I imagined that I would have a life partner. Down deep inside, I thought that it's not going to happen. But it has, and lately I think we have this dance we do with cooking for each other. Uh, we won't cook together right yet. We sort of cook for each other. Like, I've made this thing for you, and she makes this thing for me. And so that's very joyful. But as far as mystery goes, um, that's a tough one. Because I wouldn't say that as a, as a creature I go out searching for mystery. <laughs> Because probably the exact opposite, um, I want to be certain what's going to happen, you know. I would say that I experience it more lately through art, I guess. You know, getting curious about why a particular image moves me or what is it about a particular poem that's meaningful. I can't quite put my finger on it. So if there's something out there that I can't quite put my finger on, I just know I like it. Um, that seems mystery enough in a way, you know. I meet a lot of people in my work 
I've never met before. And that's mysterious, like not knowing what's going to happen between us, you know. You know, I think a lot about the mystery of of depression and the purpose of depression. Mm -hmm. Like what is the evolutionary purpose of this? Mm -hmm. And it is a mystery to me. And I try and find beauty in in it in that way. And you know, I know that Sigmund Freud wrote an important paper, one of his early papers called Mourning and Melancholia, and where he he distinguished the difference between mourning and depression. But that there was a link to him between the two in the sense that depression was a uh, a not felt loss if you're de- if you are experiencing a depression there is something in your life maybe very early or that hasn't been fully experienced it hasn't actually been fully realized as as loss but what has happened is that the depression has is going on inside of us and it helps us strangely evolutionarily as you say survive it can be debilitating in the sense that depression to keep something down to keep an experience down or to depress it takes a lot of energy when i'm really depressed i'm also very tired um and i'm not able to access something i would say that if i if i'm willing to sit with it and just allow myself to be depressed and go deeper than to try to, to uncover what it is I'm avoiding or I'm keeping down, then, then that is a really amazing experience. I, I don't know if that's God, if God, but it does seem somehow necessary to you know, to uncover what is it that's being hidden by the, by the mood called depression. The unveiling. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a bravery to that. I mean, I just think there's a bravery to the work that you've done the last 23 years in, in sitting. And um, that practice has revealed so much for you and is, is so beautiful in the way that you've done it. And I think, you know, life and the acts and the the way we spend our time is, is beauty. I keep thinking about what you were saying about how, when, when you're in the throes of it, sometimes I think you said that you forget. Yeah. And this is, I think part of the reason why I wanted to start these conversations, because I've had a lot of therapy and you know, I know the tools. I get a lot of panic and anxiety. And there's things you're supposed to do in a panic attack. Like look for certain, I don't know. See, I can never remember. You're supposed to look for some red things and smell. Or, But when I'm in the, the horror, the deep horror of depression or anxiety, fear or panic, I don't remember the tools. And there's something deeper within me or there's something there's some other quiet place I need to start working to find that you're talking about I think 
is the bigger picture to all. And I think for a lot of people who are chronically ill, you know, or in a tremendous amount of pain at 3 a.m., it's those moments. Like, what are people doing in those moments? That's the real work and that's the, where the, you know, the gristle is. It's the practice that you've done that allows you where you're in the midst of it to feel 90 seconds of... Yeah, I think that's true. I also am thinking about like what you were saying about the use of the senses and right. I I think that in those states of, you know, in the throes of it, it's really hard to trust your own mind. If you have practiced the uh the dynamic of allowing, you know, you could call it mindfulness or whatever, the dynamic of just returning to a stillness within yourself over and over and over again, that can be very helpful. But if you don't have that, you know, accessing your aliveness or your health through, through your senses can be, can be helpful, but it's just so, it can be very complicated. And I don't think there's one answer for any, any person. I think everyone has to find what is it, that grounds them, that brings them back. Like right. the other day I smelled the smell of toasted coriander and I thought, oh, this is a smell I could use. I like this smell. Yeah. And I don't know what it is about it, but I love it. Yeah. It just brings you to a place that like earth inside of you. Yes. I think that's something that's really important uh, to, because in depression, I know another thing that I would feel is totally alienated from everyone and from, and from the earth, really alienated. Like no one's going to understand this. No one, I, I'm, everyone's out of reach. If you're able, especially in nature to find something natural that brings you joy. That's just such a connection, right? Like the, the snails, I think. Um, I never noticed they travel in packs, actually. That's so interesting. Well, you only figure that out when you spend a lot of time with them in the morning and you start seeing the same huh. groups. And they do. They kind of all travel together. Huh. They sleep together in their little spots. Yeah. And I, I think in this world, everything is sped up. Right. I am totally guilty of scrolling through trashy news. First thing in the morning, <laughs> I pick up my phone and I'm really trying to break that because I don't, I'm trying to be mindful of what I'm absorbing and I'll do some trashy news in the morning and that's no way to start the day. Mm. But my phone has changed my brain. So that's the other thing of like, how do you break past all of these very intense um, dopamine addictors right and so i'm trying and i'm hopeful like these conversations that i'm hoping to keep having is finding out what everyone else is doing mm -hmm. has depression given you any gifts i have a pretty dark sense of humor <laughs> um has it given me any gifts yeah i mean i i i make my living now as a psychotherapist and I do know what 
many of my clients are uh, what many of my clients are experiencing. I also kind of understand the vicissitudes of medicating and what that means, what it gives you, what it takes away. But I would say that the thing that I value the most is you said the word courage before, but I think it's a kind of acceptance of the darker, uh, more shadowy aspects of, of life and ability to like think about, well, you know, and to actually say, yeah, I'm ambivalent about living. Part of me wants to live. And actually, some days a part of me really wants to die. I don't want to be here. Or a part of me loves you and a part of me hates you. And so being able to realize and and even acknowledge like my own arrogance, my own envy, my own hatred, I think is essential to... Uh, you know, doing what Jung called individuating, like we were, we become whole because we were able to look at through our dreams and through our art and through every through everything what we haven't acknowledged in ourselves, and and I think when you're depressed, you're not going to get through it by avoiding it. You're going to get through it by accepting it and really getting curious about it. Why are you depressed? What is it that's depressed? So I too have done a lot of psychotherapy for myself. And I think it's these people who've, uh, they haven't been healers. They've, they've been guides. They've been shepherds through, you know, the wasteland and <clears throat> have been able to um, point out things, point out patterns. Well, there's this and there's this and there's this, there's this landscape that you haven't acknowledged in yourself and uh i think this is going on and and my ego doesn't want to admit those things into consciousness but the truth is they're who i am i was watching the i'd never watched the series breaking bad you ever seen breaking bad i've seen a couple well i mean it's an it's an entertainment right but the writer is very psychological and and there's this thing going on where the characters, they all have identity crises. The one, except, except the ones who really know who they are. If they know who they are, they're sort of pure at heart. And you don't find them to be duplicitous in any way. You know, you, you just you kind of like them because they're, they know who they are. I'm the bad guy, <laughs> you know? And it's, I don't know, they've, they've acknowledged something. They've acknowledged something that when we have depression, I think, depression can be an invitation to acknowledge parts of ourselves and our experience that we don't want to. I think the sad part is that we often, sometimes those things have happened so early in our lives that we just don't have the words for them. And they've manifested in different ways like addictions or cutting or picking bad partners or something like that, you know? I want to come back again to what you were saying about, I can't remember his name. You spoke about who has believes that, you know, beautiful things 
have soul. Oh, Facino, yeah. Chino. Marsilio Facino.、Mm-hmm. And he's that is a book that you reach for, or that is something that you reach for. I'm working through a book that that Thomas More、uh, wrote. He also wrote a book,、uh, a very popular book later on called Care of the Soul, which everyone loved. It sort of catapulted him into some literary fame. But earlier in his life, he did these, or in his career, he did these kind of esoteric studies and monographs and. This one is on the astrological psychology of Marsilio Ficino, and he became very interested in what Ficino meant by the word soul, and where is soul? Like you were talking about Bingen's quote, yeah. And I think he thought that everything, every material thing, possessed some some kind of、uh, consciousness, if you will. Some kind of soul, soul being the in-between place between material and spiritual, and that if you surround yourself with beautiful things, your soul will respond to it. You don't have to do anything else. But the beautiful things on on my altar and on my nightstand, I think they're they're essential to you know having having beauty get radiated around me and. Knowing that I'm going to pick up some of that. Yeah, and it's the beauty I think of, of just the little rituals of the day, that add up as well. Yes, I mean I think just the idea that you have a ritual is beautiful. That there's this intentional thing you're doing. It is kind of like art in the sense that, ideally, you know, artists maybe sometimes their their works of art are are happy mistakes, but. But even if they're, you know, like Jackson Pollock, even you know his squiggly, he was intentionally squiggling. He, you know, he had he had an intention、uh, in the marks he was making, and so、um, that can arrive at a beautiful moment. But I think that when we feel good doing the art or putting a mark down or a color, I think it's in the moment of creativity. I wouldn't say art has as much to do、uh, art as religion. I mean, it can be, but for me, I think it's the、um, it's the willful engagement of creativity, like making something, using the creative imagination to create something out of nothing. That line, I believe, it's in those moments where we're, where I'm creating or I'm doing something. Where I'm remembering myself, that's that. Go back to the thin place again. I think if you can feel that place when you're looking at a piece of art, and you're moved in a certain mysterious way, that that is something. That's something valuable, but the experience itself of some kind of communication or communion between you and a And a piece of art, or you, and the canvas, or you and a line in a script, is pure active creation, which I think is religious. If that makes sense, it totally makes sense. That was just beautifully,、yeah. exquisitely said.、Oh. We've gone in、yeah. some beautiful directions. And、um, is there anything that you want to say about? Is there anything else you want to say that I didn't ask you, or that you've been thinking about since we started emailing that you'd like to share? Or 
I just wanted to acknowledge somehow that this project you're doing is unique in the sense that it's really taking a look at the the things and the practices that help people cope with chronic illness. And I started thinking of it as a kind of invisible, let's say invisible clothing that no one knows they're wearing. And it's that personal. It's it's very idiosyncratic and it's very personal that still to this day uh, these objects are so important to me that when I go on a trip and I know I'm going to be gone for you know maybe more than three days I will bring a candle and incense I will bring these things with me as essential connections material connections to I guess the soul if you will like these are like material bridges to a practice that really helps get me by. I mean, it can't be underestimated how important these these things do become to a person. They could be the simplest things. They really do structure daily life in a way that can really be essential and comforting. You know, I think that illness can be profoundly uncomfortable and but we find these things that help ameliorate that discomfort. And maybe it's a, a balm or a medication, but maybe it's just a little, a little book of things that somehow give us hope that there's more beyond my neuroses. You know, <laughs> like there's more beyond my thought that I'm going to die tomorrow, or something like that. You know, and sometimes that's enough to bridge me from one day to another. And that really can't be underestimated. It really can't, because it does provide not only soothing, but the courage to face another day. Yeah, the courage to face another day. Thank you for traveling with us today through the objects, rituals, and books on Richard's Nightstand. For a list of the books mentioned in this episode, please visit the website at thegeographyofillness.com and the tab podcast. I have lots of fascinating guests this season. I will be chatting with educators, writers, musicians, artists, a Catholic nun, and an archaeologist, all who navigate the waters of chronic illness. They will be bringing their rituals, tools, and stories to share. I do hope that you can join me. So please consider subscribing to the show.